My name's Wayne, I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank Jeannie and the committee for inviting me to come share this weekend with you good folks. A lot of my friends are here. I want to thank you for that wonderful room I'm in and all the mirrors. <laughs> we almost didn't get here. I'm the only one in the room. <laughs> Want to thank you for that denture friendly fruit basket. <laughs> I want to thank Frick and Frack for picking me up at the airport. <laughs> Tom was supposed to pick me up, but since he doesn't have a driver's license yet, he had to ask her. <laughs> had to ask another newcomer with a driver's license that didn't know where we were going. <laughs> Turned a one and a half hour drive in a two hour and 40 minute adventure. <laughs> I know much more than I want to about both of them. But we talked a lot about AA while we were on our way. And I think I want to say that I love AA. I see many friends here that I've met over the past few 24 hours on campus AA. And uh, many that I haven't met yet that I'm sure I will as the weekend goes along. I, ju I just love AA. I, I think if I have anything else that, uh, of any import to share with you is that uh, I love AA. And when I'm with you, I'm not with me. You hear me? Because when I'm not with you, I'm left with me. And I'm not alone. There should be a neighborhood watch sign right there. My home group, in case you're ever in the vicinity, is the Pacific Group in West Los Angeles. About 900 of us meet every Wednesday night in the synagogue at Sunset in Saltaire. Our meeting starts at 8 o'clock. Come early, stay late, fellowship with us, and I promise we'll treat you as well as you've treated me so far this weekend. <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, it's good to see my friend Dick. My life's been interesting the past few weeks. I don't want to get into that, but I'll tell you, I am a firm believer in commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous because at my weakest moment in emotion comes the strongest need for commitment. And I sponsor a number of alcoholics, and they call me daily. And, and I get a chance not to think about myself for about an hour every morning. And I don't know about you, but for this kind of alcoholic, that's a good thing. And uh, I'll tell you, I haven't had a drink or any pills, powders, potions, or lotions that affect me from the neck up for 21 years, 8 months, and 1 day, and I'm happy about that. <laughs> that doesn't mean I won't be drunk tomorrow. 
And if you're new in this room, I want to let you know I know that as well as anybody does. So when I was asked to come do this, I'm here. Uh, partly because I want to, but partly because I know God probably wants me to be here. And I can't think of a better place to be. It's nice to see one of my favorite Alamounds in the whole world, Beverly from Texas. I'm just Her husband asked me to watch her this weekend, and I think I'm doing a good job. <laughs> You'll hear that. Did I mention I love AA? Okay. If you're new in this room, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an adventure. And it's, ho- it's one I hope you don't miss, because many of us do. Uh, just because I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous today does not mean I'll be in Alcoholics Anonymous tomorrow. I believe it's more dangerous for me today than it was 21 years ago, because I'm that far removed from the pain and suffering of my past. And I think that's why it's important that I remember that so that I continue to work with newcomers because they reflect to me from whence I came. I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to tell you that I remember that pain, but I don't. Pain has no memory past a few hours. And I've got the type of a pain in my life that I don't ever want to return to it again. The despair and the hopelessness and the futility of life as I lived it, and the, the, the fear, the terror, and the loneliness. Uh, I remember them intellectually, but because I'm with you, I don't remember them emotionally. I remember them through new people. So if you're new, I want you to know you have a purpose tonight. (laughs) It's to remind me of my suffering. (laughs) My loneliness and my fear. I'm not making fun. And I hope that you can get from me, when I share my experience tonight, some strength and hope. Because I did. I'll tell you about my first AA convention in a bit. But uh, first of all, I want to tell you that I just think it's a godsend that I'm here. I, fl- I don't like to fly, and I flew into St. Louis. No bumps, thank God. And uh, got met by Tom and Jeff, and uh, was brought here. And then I saw Dick and went right over and said hi to Dick and, and got dressed and ate dinner. And I've, and I've had just a wonderful time, and I've run into people. Everywhere I turn, there's someone I've seen at a convention somewhere on campus AA. And it just means the world to me. And to pick up a drink would mean to walk away from all of that. It would mean to walk away from 1,950,000 people I know and don't know yet. And that's really the truth in the world of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I I get the privilege and the benefit of traveling around an awful lot. And I know what I would miss. And you know, but to think about it for just a few minutes, I might think about picking up a Budweiser. Because I love to drink. Do you know what helps to drink to be an alcoholic? Some people don't know that. I love Budweiser. I love Budweiser more than life itself. And I know we're close. Anheuser-Busch is right in St. Louis. I'll tell you how much I miss Budweiser. As we were flying over St. Louis, getting ready to land, and I could sense Anheuser-Busch. I tried to talk to stewardess in the slowing the plane down for a moment of silence. That's an amazing thing how I could love something like that. I mean, I even identify with Louis the Lizard. (laughs) You remember Super Bowl last year when they had Louis with two frogs on each side pounding him? I knew how he felt. (laughs) That's how much I miss Budweiser sometimes. And I got to remember that Alcoholics Anonymous is providing for me a, a thing called the effect produced that allows me to not take a drink today. And I didn't know that for the longest time. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I'm a person who did not know what was wrong. I've been psychiatrically institutionalized 17 times. 
and I like it there. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. If you drank like I drank, and you act like I acted, on the street, I couldn't get a date to save my life. But you put me in a psych ward and I got a 50-50 shot. <laughs> AA's a lot like that. We just got doorknobs on both sides. <laughs> There's something really wrong with me. And I could never figure it out. It's like alcoholism. I didn't know what that was. I mean, my dad drank. My dad died from untreated alanonism, alcoholism. <laughs> my mother died from untreated alanonism. You know, people usually laugh at that. My, my mother died from untreated alanonism. She died from the hopelessness and the futility of my dad's alcoholism. And it affected me, but it didn't make me an alcoholic, so I'm not going to go into much detail about my upbringing. I come from an alcoholic home. That should suffice if you come from one. Uh, if you want a little insight into what my family life was like, though, just watch Jerry Springer for about a week. <laughs> it's like a Butler family reunion. Whenever I get lonely in California, I just turn on Channel 11. I just don't want to go home no more. And I had no idea my dad had alcoholism. No idea what was wrong. I'll tell you something about my condition. I have a thing called alcoholism. And I didn't understand it. There's many, many things out there. My sponsor today refers to it as a disease of perception. Now, let me give you a clue what that means to me. When I was relatively new, my sponsor took me to meetings in Chicago because the police were looking for me in Moline. <laughs> and we was at a group called the Mustard Seed. They was having an anniversary. And uh, there was a mixture of people in there. And, and uh, my sponsor had me in the second row, and he was in the first row with all the old-timers, you know, so they didn't have to look at the disease behind them. And uh, there's a speaker up here. You know, in, in my opinion, he was lying, just like some of you are going to think I am before I'm done. At least that's what I tell my best friend, Jimmy, who was sitting next to me. I'd known him three minutes. This guy's up here speaking and talking away, and, and I'm listening, and I'm thinking, how can New York send him out here to talk? He's a liar. And so I started telling Jimmy, Jimmy, that speaker's a liar. He couldn't have drank like that. His guts would fall out. And he'd talk, and I'd nudge Jimmy, and I'd say, Jimmy, he couldn't have done that. He'd get locked up for the rest of his natural life. And he'd talk. Pretty soon I'd nudge I'd say, Jimmy, he couldn't have done that. He'd be in a psych ward. He wouldn't get out. He'd be doing a Thorazine shuffle forever. And I guess my sponsor got sick and tired of hearing that, and he turned around and looked me right in the eye, and here's what I heard him say in front of 300 people. Shut up, you goddamn loser. <laughs> You ain't got a thing to say we want to hear. And if we ever think you do, we'll come out to that car we pulled you out of behind Harvey's restaurant, we'll toot your little horn, and we'll invite you in to share. <laughs> now until that point, sit there, shut your mouth, or leave. That's what I heard him say. Here's what I found out later he really said. <laughs> You listening? <laughs> I had a condition I don't understand. I don't know what's wrong with me. I grew up with certain ideas in my head, didn't know where they came from, made them up all by myself most of the time. I've got a condition known as alcoholism. 
And the ism is important. I didn't know what it was, but it affected my entire life and precipitated my becoming an alcoholic and suffering from a condition known as alcoholism. Now, I don't like people to get up here at the podium and quote the big book, page and paragraph, trying to impress me with what they know and what I don't know. It bothers me a great deal. <laughs> Just thought I'd vent. <laughs> There's a thing called the ism. There's a lot of acronyms like I sponsor myself. <laughs> I like the one that's in the big book. It's internal spiritual maladjustment. You hear me? On page 53 of the big book, it says... <laughs> on page 53, it says, God is everything or he's nothing. God either is or he isn't. What's my decision to be? Spiritual. Then on page 55, it says, deep down inside every, keyword every, I resented that. Man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Internal. And maladjustment on page Roman numeral 24. <laughs> says, quote, we are, you're going to like this, maladjusted to life, in full flight from reality, and outright mental defectives. <laughs> Thanks for the hope. <laughs> now, it helped me to discover what that ism was. I didn't know. I mean, who would know? And it's in the big book, written by Dr. Silkworth. And it's in the 12 and 12, written by Father Ed Dowling, Dr. Harry Tebow, and Reverend Sam Shoemaker. There's a set of symptoms that go along with that internal spiritual maladjustment. Now, here's how it goes for me. When I tell you I'm an alcoholic, here's what I'm really suggesting. I realize I look to you right now like I'm a full-grown, adult, mature man. I don't know why they laugh at that. <laughs> In all reality, according to the book, I remain childish, grandiose, and gravely, emotionally immature. <laughs> As a growing human concern, my natural state is one of growing anxiety, depression, and Fear coupled with an intense desire for excitement. <laughs> A condition of being which renders me little obsessive, compulsive, impulsive, excessive, controlling, demanding need for attention, acceptance, and unqualified approval. A condition of being which renders me apart from separate, restless, irritable. Now you might wonder how that appears in my mental and emotional makeup. <laughs> Mentally, my thought life is governed by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, all of which drive me to live my life according to selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, inconsiderate, resentful, and frightened motives in life. Motives which, left unattended in me, arouse and engage dangerous and life-threatening, and I said life-threatening, levels of lust. <laughs> Pride, anger, envy, greed, sloth, gluttony, I turn into a pig, I want it all. That renders me emotionally a bit sensitive. <laughs> Which means I have a strong tendency toward taking everything I see or hear personal. I don't like criticism. 
And I can't stand praise. I don't believe you. When it comes to suffering emotionally, I don't like to suffer emotionally. I don't suffer well. And I don't suffer alone. Socially, I'm a bankrupt idealist and brooding perfectionist who lives defensively and guarded in fear of being found out. Therefore, when it comes to my fellow man, I demand. And I said, demand to possess and control and every circumstance that enters my Therefore, I am quick to anger, slow to virtue, and I get a distinct, succinct delight and twisted out of judging and criticizing everybody I see. <laughs> I tend to rationalize, minimize, justify, and deny all my actions while casting blame upon innocent people in a vigorous attempt to avoid detection. My outstanding characteristic is defiance. And rebellion dogs my every step. Now, as a child of God, <laughs> that's a catalog of my finer qualities. Anybody want a date? I'm looking for work. Now, if you're new, I want to suggest something to you from my experience. You're going to hear those symptoms at every meeting you go to. And if you've been around here a while, I submit to you, you have probably heard every one of those symptoms at every single meeting you've gone to. But here's how you're going to hear it in AA. I don't fit in. I don't belong. I feel apart from. What's wrong with me? My case must be different. And I submit to you, I've heard that from every person that shared an Alcoholic Anonymous as alcoholic of my type. And it's interesting to note in the big book and in the 12 and 12, it tells me what I do with that. Apparently, don't worry, I'm going to become alcoholic pretty quick. Apparently, <laughs> this is a psychological truth. My sponsor mentioned it to me. My second sponsor talked about the psychotic break. Apparently, I act outwardly in an effort to match how I feel inwardly so I don't have a psychotic break from the conflict. So when I feel bad, I act bad. I don't have the power not to act bad. And apparently it affected me this way. It affects people different ways. When I was a kid, I had this strong feeling that I was ugly. I remember looking in the mirror somewhere between the age of eight and nine and said to myself, Butler, it's too bad, pal. It's going to be a long life. And it's going to be lonely because you are butt ugly, pal. I don't know where that came from. My mother never sat me down and said, Oh, you, you poor little son of a... Boy, just out of mercy alone, I'd put you back if I could. That's not what my mother said, but that's what I heard when she said, I love you. And I felt retarded, too. And it's funny. When you feel retarded, you have a tendency to act retarded. Do you know what they'll do in school if you act retarded? They'll diagnose you. Ninth grade, I got diagnosed severely retarded, and I got put in retarded class. I improved. <laughs> to the degree that I never left a retarded class all through school. Graduated high school with retarded kids. It wasn't all bad. The retarded kids, boys, could go to the girls' bathroom and not get detention. <laughs> you got to go with what they give you. And I don't know what's wrong with me. I have no idea. And drinking's not an issue with me. 
But I remember in the book, doctors, in the doctor's opinion, Dr. Silkworth talks about an effect produced by alcohol, and that normal effect, says he. It's an illusion, he says further. An illusion meaning it doesn't really happen, it just appears to, to the afflicted one. And that it doesn't happen to any other kind of drinker except the drinker that has alcoholism. I didn't know what that meant. I do today. So, you, I was 17 years old, I was in the senior class, and Tom, who was a, a, a guy in the senior class who felt sorry for us retarded kids and took us on field trips, he liked me because I was his favorite because I was brighter than most. <laughs> I used to brag about that until my sponsor pointed out that a light bulb burns brightest just before it burns out. <laughs> Tom took me to a senior dance. I've never been to a senior dance before. I go to the senior dance. I'm 6'3", 120 pounds. I feel ugly. I know I'm retarded. I got pimples where God never intended pimples to be. And I'm standing up against the dan uh, wall watching everybody dance, right? And they're just out there having a good time doing whatever they're doing. And I can't take a step forward because I know I'll trip over my 13 and a half inch gunboat feet that everybody makes fun of. And if they do, I'll kill their family. <laughs> I'm acutely aware of my own presence. Tom brings me over this long brown bottle with a red, white, and blue label called Budweiser. If I don't know what it was about to do, I'd have saluted that thing. But I remember drinking that bottle of Bud and I said, Tom, that tastes terrible. I want a Pepsi-Cola. And Tom said something that still reverberates in my mind. He said, that's okay, kid. You'll get used to it. Now, that's, what happened isn't what he meant. What Tom meant was for most people who drink that are young, snot-nosed, wet-brained kids like me, is I'm going to get a little bit dizzy, probably get sick first time I drank, probably drink too much, puke, and then get used to it. That ain't what happened to me. Somewhere between four or five Budweiser's, I got so good looking, I couldn't stand it. I went from 6'3", 120 pounds to 6'3", 240 pounds, and I felt bulletproof. And I remember looking out on that dance floor, and I eyeballed me a blue-eyed blonde, dancing with some loser. <laughs> and I walked right up to her and asked her to dance. And she said yes. Found out later that night sex meant two people. <laughs> I didn't know that. And I immediately needed therapy because she ruined my sex life. See, I've been having sex since I was 13 and I was damn good at it. She complicated everything. And then I had what I now know is a blackout. I couldn't remember what happened after that. Tom to him had a great time, so I said, good, and went back to retarded class. A few weeks later, my dad calls me and says, we've got a problem. I said, what's that? He says, you know that girl you was with? And I said, yes, sir. He said, she's 16. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he said, she's pregnant. Now I could tell that wasn't good. <laughs> and I said to my dad, what's that mean? Well, see, in the state of Illinois, if a boy, 14 or older, has sex with a girl 17 or younger, consensual or not, doesn't matter. It's called statutory rape. And I said, dad, what's that mean? He says, 20 years to lie. I said, even if you're retarded? <laughs> Would that fly, Clint? <laughs> so I found out if you marry him, you don't go to jail. So I fell in love. <laughs> we went to Palmyra, Missouri, where marriage is negotiable. <laughs> And we got married. Now I want you to picture this. We're on our way back in Palmyra, Missouri. My mom and dad in the front seat. Me and my new wife, Bonnie, with baby in the bellies in the back seat. I'm about to graduate to retarded class in high school, and I've drank one time. 
I'm done. So I went back to retiree class. Now, Silkworth talks about, in his own words, how we become geographical when the heat's on. In other words, if it's hot here, it looks really cool over there. My brother's in a place called Vietnam on an aircraft carrier. And I knew, I didn't know where Vietnam was, but I knew it was a long way from where I was standing, so I asked my dad if I could join the Navy. My dad says, well, I don't know if they'll take a retarded kid, but let's go see. <laughs> so my dad took me down to the Naval Recruiter's office, and on the way he prepped me. He said, now don't tell them anything about the retarded class, just take the test. So we filled out the application. My dad signed on the dotted line. I took the Naval Entry Exam, and I scored in the upper 3 percentile of the United States Navy. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> so they put me in the Naval Reserve so I could finish graduating the retarded class <laughs> and birth that child. And uh, just before I turned 18, I drank for the second time. Now, in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, Dr. Silkworth suggests that abnormal drinkers like me experience strange mental twists <laughs> prior to a lapse into drinking. I went to a party and I saw all kinds of Budweiser and I made a conscious decision not to drink Budweiser because I don't want no more babies. <laughs> so I saw this bottle of clear liquid called tequila. <laughs> now what would I know from the retarded class about tequila? <laughs> Tom said you got to watch out, tequila will catch up to you and so I drank the whole bottle. Now I know what he means. It means I'm going to talk to God. <laughs> in person <laughs> by the way as a side note if you talk to God don't tell a doctor because <laughs> you're not getting out until you produce him <laughs> it ain't that they don't believe you they just want proof <laughs> and I heard God tell me to kill my family and uh, apparently I went home to my house and tried to take the life of my wife and new baby and ended up in a psychiatric ward and uh, got diagnosed a psychopath, potential, <laughs> homicidal psychopath. And uh, being in the Naval Reserve, being at uh, a Navy doctor from the Davenport Naval Reserve headquarters was on that panel and uh, he figured out he had a good place to send a guy with my qualification sent me to Vietnam <laughs> and I never drank while I was gone I was afraid to drink I drank twice now look what happened first time I drank got to get married second time I drank Dan near killed my family can't wait till the third time I'm done drinking I was sent to Vietnam I haven't talked about this much before I'll talk about it tonight uh, I was sent over there on a destroyer and, and uh, I was on a four-man gun crew and and uh, we was given the coordinates to hit, and we hit the wrong coordinates, and we hit a school, and we killed all the kids in that school. The three other men in my gun crew were okay with that. I wasn't. I splintered. And I started making up all kinds of stories about Vietnam, none of which included the truth, because I couldn't face and deal with it, and the shame, and something snapped inside me. I was gone a total of three years. I came back 21 years of age. I'd been in Korea, I'd been in Vietnam, and other places, touring, cruising, but I never drank a drop. That's the power of the will. Never drink a drop. And I came back 21 years of age. I was captain's driver. I was stationed in San Diego. I played baseball for the 7th Fleet. I had watchstanders Liberty. I stayed in my dress uniform all day, played baseball in the evening. I had it made. 
And one night the captain asked me to babysit his kids, and I said I would. I got the ship's company car, went to pick his kids up, and the thought occurred to me, Wayne, let's stop and get a six-pack of Bud. What the hell? Why not? What can it hurt? We've only drank twice, and prior to that, nothing really bad happened. <laughs> so without a second thought, I drank the six-pack, put his kids in the car, and went to get another six-pack of Bud. And that's all I remember. I blacked out again. And I came out of that blackout with my captain six inches from my face, screaming, where's my kids? He really wanted to know. We did some research and found them. It's an interesting thing. I took them to a sister's house. Now, don't you think that's the appropriate thing to do? Don't you think the captain should have understand that sometimes you get drunk and forget? <laughs> but he wanted me to go to treatment for this thing called alcoholism because I had a blackout and I lost his kids and I endangered them in his mind. And I didn't want to go to treatment because I'm not an alcoholic. How can you be an alcoholic when you've only drank three or four times in your entire life? How can you be an alcoholic? Because I, al I didn't know what alcoholism was. But you know what? I became an alcoholic that day at 17. I took that first drink, and the effect was produced in my mind. That's what makes me an alcoholic. It's a twofold thing. Mental obsession was engaged in my mind for the effect produced. And I didn't know what that effect produced was, but I chased it till I, I chased it till it almost killed me. And the tragedy of alcoholism is, is it doesn't have the mercy to kill me first. It takes everybody and everything around me first before it has the mercy to take me. That's the one thing that separates our spiritual disease from all the rest of the diseases known to man, is it takes me last. I'm not fortunate enough to be successfully suicidal. I tried. I uh, got discharged and uh, went home to my wife and now two kids, and she moved out shortly thereafter. She said I looked like Charles Manson, and she moved in the middle of the night. Met my second wife in a five-day blackout, and to make a long story short, we did the dance of death. I was drinking and trying to reproduce the original effect produced, and I didn't know that. In the doctor's opinion, it says that's why I drink, the effect produced. I had no idea that I was chasing that original effect because it does something for me so profound that it causes alcohol to be cunning, baffling, and all-powerful. The 12 and 12 uses big words. It says, Bacchus, the god, Bacchus boomeranged on us. Bacchus in mythological days was called the god of wine. That is to say, the effect produced is by. And then it goes on to say it allows me to act extemporaneously. That's a big word, which means I can walk amongst you on the natch. My sponsor says to take away the differences, to make me feel like I fit in, I belong, I'm a part of. And that's the effect produced by alcohol. And if I ever drink again, ladies and gentlemen, that's why. It's because there's an unconscious effect trying to be produced in my mind for seeming normalcy. And I chased that effect until November 8, 1977, when nothing was left to take. And I chased it to that day, but you know what? That was five years into AA. What drove me into AA was a series of circumstances and events. I'll mention one. My wife, we had the two kids, and now I'm carrying a gun and a knife because I'm scared of the dark. I'm not a tough guy. I'm a frightened man, the worst kind to deal with. And I was out, my wife sent me out for a gallon of milk. This is while I was still home, of course. I went out to get that gallon of milk, and three days later I showed up by the time it curdled into cottage cheese. And it was at 2 a.m. in the morning. The Al-Anon wake-up call. <laughs> no offense. You all know that dance. She wanted to know where I'd been for three days. I wish I could tell her. How do you explain a blackout when you don't know what they are? And she ain't letting up just because I can't remember. And that dance of death is on. And i got to tell you, I'll never forget that night, 2 o'clock in the morning, I've awakened my two daughters by rolling around on the floor fighting with her mother. 
And then I feel my one daughter wrapped around my leg trying to pull me away, and my other daughter curled up in the fetal position screaming for everything she's worth in the corner of the room. And then I have an out-of-body experience. I see myself pull a 357 out of my boot, put it to my wife's head, and I pull the trigger. And life stops. Nothing means nothing right then. Norm Alpey used to say that sometimes life hangs in the balance of seconds and inches, and we can't explain why it goes either way. But then it occurred to me the gun didn't go off. Gun misfired. I still got that bullet. I don't ever want to forget that night. It's a 357 hollow point. It's got the firing pin, a dented center mass, and a cap. Should have went off. She left me anyway. <laughs> By the way, if you're judging me right now, I don't blame you. But be careful. When we start passing judgment in AA, we've begun to ease our way out of AA. One great man once said, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. I'm not asking you to excuse me on that account. I'm just explaining to you that there are no saints in AA. We all come here carrying a bag, and, and fortunately, by the grace of God, we have 12 steps to unload the bag and pick up a new one, the one of sobriety. I'll tell you what a tough guy alcoholic I am, glazed over with desperation. Do you know what a desperate alcoholic is like? I sat there by the front door after she left, bawled like a baby for three days in fetal position, couldn't move. Begging God to bring him back. Making deals out of chapter 3. Right out of chapter 3. God, if you bring her back, I'll quit drinking for the rest of my life. Even Ripple. <laughs> God, if you bring her back, I'll sell my gun. God, if you bring her back, I'll sell all my guns. And then I went for the big one. I'll get a job. That's big for me. Three days later, there's a knock on the door. Remember that desperation? And by the way, if you work with a newcomer, I implore you not to do anything to ease their desperation. Take advantage of that desperation and direct them into actions they would not take otherwise if they weren't desperate. Because the desperation is fleeting. And as soon as the desperation is lost, the willingness begins to dissipate. I know from my experience. Because when that door knock came, I answered my door. You know who it was? My wife. I've been there for three days bawling, couldn't move. She looked at me and she says, can we come home? That fast. I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> you hurt me when you left. <laughs> if you promise never to abandon me again, you can come home. That's what I said. And you know she moved back? Alcoholism is a family spiritual disease. And thank God the family members have a thing called the Al-Anon family groups to go to to put themselves back together again. Because me as an alcoholic, I tend to only see what it does to me. I have the, a difficult time seeing what it does to you and then what in turn that does to me. That brought me a day, though I didn't know it. I left home and I started sleeping in the car behind Harvey's restaurant. And a night waitress felt sorry for me and cut a deal. She let me, eat, she let me mop and wax the dining room floors for two sausage sandwiches on whole wheat toast. <laughs> Quite the deal. Getting ready for AA, didn't know it. <laughs> One night, the owner of that restaurant comes in. His name is Harvey. He's a guy that stands about five foot nine. That was ugly. He passed me up long ago. This guy had one of them giant noses. You ever seen it with a great big light bulb on the end? And it just, it's black and blue. The blood veins are showing beneath the skin, purple and red. And when his heart beats, his nose thumps, you know. <laughs> Harvey came in one night and, now I remember that perception of hearing I have? Well, Harvey hands me this brass coin with two A's on it. And he says, you go see these people, they're friends of mine, they're going to help you. Now that's not what I heard. 
I heard they'll give me some free food to eat because they know I'm hungry. <laughs> they'll give me some pocket dough because they know I'm broke. And three or four packs of pell-mell tailor-made cigarettes. And that's the only reason I went to 416 16th Street Moline that next day. And he told me there'd be a light bulb hanging on a cord in the hallway of the basement. If it was on, go in. They were expecting me. So I go to the address and right there, there it is. And on the side of the building it says, posted by the city of Moline, building condemned, do not enter. <laughs> right beneath it is another sign with an arrow pointing into the basement. said, AA 16th Street, welcome. <laughs> and the light bulb hanging on the cord was flickering on and off. I didn't know what that meant. He said if it was on, go in. But he didn't say what to do if it was flickering. Now, I don't know about you, but that made me crazy. So I went over to Larry's Oasis and had a few drinks, and then I didn't care. I went back there and charged through the basement door, failed to notice that the doorway was 5'10-ish. I'm 6'3-ish. And I caught it right across the eyebrow. And the impact literally knocked me off my feet and I slid into my first meet about college nominee. <laughs> about six feet inside the door is a round table with six or seven old buffoons waiting to die. And I slid right between two of them. And this old ugly crusty one gets up and goes just like this. Then he says, slide right in here, dummy. We got a wrench to fit every nut that comes in the door. I didn't like him right away. I looked up at him and I said, my name's Wayne. He says, I got it, dummy. I'm going to be your sponsor. Now, I was getting ready to pull that gun out of him. And the reason I didn't is because when I heard him say sponsor, I put the gun away and I'll tell you why. I played baseball. Sponsors pay for everything. <laughs> I began a journey in Alcoholics Anonymous that continues to this day. Though I drank the first five years. I went to meetings, I drank before meetings, I drank after meetings, and after I caught on to things, I, I drank during meetings. <laughs> now, if you ever find a gathering like this where a drinking drunk is not allowed to sit and listen, that's not A. In my opinion, that's a gathering of people that forgot where they came from. However, we're going to ask you to behave while you're here, and see, that's my problem. See, I can, I can either drink or I can behave, I just can't do them simultaneously. I remember I came into my home group one time, four years drinking, and I was loud and late, loud and late, and there's a speaker speaking, and of course I made my entrance, one of the old timers said, you got to quiet down. I don't know about you, but when authority sticks itself in my face, something happens to me. The spirituality I came in with was gone. And I looked at him, and as soon as he said, you got to quiet down, I said, I don't want to. Another one got up and said, you got to sit down. I said, I don't, want, I don't have to. Another one said, you got to leave. You're welcome to come back tomorrow. We don't kick nobody out of AA. But if you're going to disrupt the meeting, you have to leave. And I said, you can't make me. Yeah, they can. <laughs> Four guys about your size, each one picked up an arm and a leg. Talked a newcomer into holding the door open, I noticed as I flew by. 
just before I hit, I heard one of the old timers yell out, Keep coming back! <laughs> Four and a half years drinking, going to meetings. I walk into a meeting one night and my sponsor yelled out, Hey, dummy! What? <laughs> he says, You know this program tends to work better if you don't drink. <laughs> I didn't know that. And had done something to my mind. And all I remember is reaching down and pulling that 357 out, and I wheeled it around, and I fired around off of my sponsor's face, and I missed him six inches high. There's a standing joke at the Moline Group, if Barney would have been six foot tall, he'd be six foot under. <laughs> I came through the next morning in a six-point leather restraints tied to a steel bed in the center of a padded room at Franciscan Mental Health Center in Rock Island, Illinois, black and blue from head to toe from a little AA group therapy. <laughs> most dedicated therapy I've ever got. <laughs> I had a visitor that morning, you know who it was? My sponsor, I couldn't get rid of him for nothing. He was like a maggot on a bad piece of meat. I'm laying there naked face up and he's got a woman escort nurse because they don't trust him alone with me. I might bite through the leathers or something, I don't got no teeth. He's walking around snickering at things to be cute. And then he says to me, dummy, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I don't even know if you're an alcoholic. You might just be nuts. <laughs> and I'm laying there thinking they gotta let me out. Of, they gotta let me out of here someday, pal. And as soon as I thought that thought, he says to me, "Dummy, I don't know if they're gonna let you out of here or not." It's like he had ESPN. <laughs> he says they're talking about keeping you and studying you a while. I became willing. <laughs> and then he said the music of AA. Said if they when they let you out of here, if you come with us and do what we did and still do, you can recover too. See, he knew something I didn't know. He knew I suffered from a soul sickness. And that my soul sickness is what's causing me to have all these internal spiritual maladjustments, and that's what's causing all the fear and all the resentment and all that. And he also knew that once there's an old saying, when the soul hears the music, it'll dance and hear the choir. So sing loud. Sing loud the identification of alcoholism so that a sick and suffering alcoholic can hear that music because that's what my soul responded to when I laid down by the restraint. My sponsor didn't scold me. He didn't tell me what a piece of crap I was. I was doing that. Instead, he says to me, you come do what we did and still do. And you can. And I was to get sober November 8, 1977 and start my journey. Uh, didn't mean to. It just happened. I don't know God had something to do with it. I don't know how it took place. But November 8, 1977, I found myself at the Moline Group. Three weeks later, they had a convention. I want to tell you about that. If you're new in this room and this is your first convention, I welcome you. I hope it's not your last. I was three minutes sober, three weeks to be exact, Thanksgiving weekend, 1977. My sponsor's taken me to an AA convention where all you <laughs> smiley people are. <laughs> Within three weeks, I was sick of the hugs and the handshakes and all the love. <laughs> And he told me I couldn't go looking like I was looking. Now, I had long hair, but to put it truthfully, it had stuff in it. <laughs> and he wanted me to get it cut because we couldn't wash it out. And then he took me to the Salvation Army and bought me my first sober set of clothes. Y'all ever done that? You ever had your sponsor buy you your first sober set of clothes? Let me tell you what he did. 
took me to the Salvation Army in East Moline, Illinois, and bought me a lime green double knit polyester suit. <laughs> Had yellow lining with green tennis rackets. <laughs> then he took me over to the shirt department where I picked out the shirt because I'm getting silk, enough of this polyester stuff. So I bought this real cool satiny type silk shirt, I thought, with animals on it and collars that went down to here. I thought it was cool. <laughs> Found out it was brushed polyester. <laughs> then we went to the underwear and I said, no. We went over to the shoe department and the only 13 and a half inch gun boots they had were these, remember those disco days? Remember those black and brown box toe Oxford shoes with the two and a half inch platform sole and the four to six inch heel? That's all they had, so we bought them. I got out of Salvation Army for a buck eighty-five. And he took me to his convention and stood me at the door and made me a greeter. Oh, yeah. I want to tell you who the speakers were at my first convention three weeks over in that wonderful outfit. Guy by the name of Chuck C. and Norm A. That was fun. Clancy I. and Johnny H. Dottie S. and a guy by the name of Tom Brady from Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, when they walked up to my sponsor and shook his hand, everything was really cool. But they couldn't, Chuck C. couldn't even look at me. <laughs> Clancy went by as fast as he could. Johnny just stood there and stared. And he goes like this. My God. Can you hear it? My God. And they're all laughing. I couldn't take it no more. I finally looked at Barney and said, Barney, are they laughing at me? He goes like this. Yeah, dummy, they are. You are a sight to behold. He says, but you know what? If you ever learn to laugh at yourself, you'll never be left unamused. <laughs> After that convention, I was motivated. There's no way, and I want to tell you something my sponsor did. I don't know if I will ever have the humility he had that night to know I needed to be with them. My sponsor was their host, Chuck and Elsa's, and he gave up his seat at the dinner banquet table so I could sit with them. Now, back then, I didn't appreciate it. Today, I wish I could have that moment back. So what I'll do is I'll try to give that to a newcomer somewhere down the road. But I'm going to tell you something. Something changed in me. I fell in love. I was too psychotic to know it, but I fell in love with AA that And I went on a, I went on a mission to save people. <laughs> My sponsor said I had to work with people. So I saw some unsuspecting newcomer fresh out of treatment. Walked into my home group and I literally grabbed him by the throat. And I put him up against the wall and I said, Listen, asshole! If you want what I got, you gotta do what I did! And here's what I heard You ain't got a goddamn thing I want! So I went running to Barney and I said, Barney, he said he ain't got, I ain't got nothing he wants. And Barney says, you ain't got nothing nobody wants. 
But he says, you keep trying, you're bound to find one sick enough to listen to you. <laughs> and my sponsor asked me to give my life to Alcoholics Anonymous for a year, and I want you to know something. He sold me on a bill of goods that to this day holds me in good stead. He told me that that first year was my foundation year, and that I'm going to build a foundation upon which the God of my understanding will place a house with many rooms. And if I dig a solid foundation and reinforce that foundation, that that foundation will hold that house in the certain, certain, he didn't say the possible, the certain emotional storms of life that are going to tether my place. And he said, if that foundation isn't strong, it will one day fall and I will drink. I bought, the, I bought it. So for the first year, I did everything my sponsor said to do. Didn't understand greeting people at the door. I don't like people. I don't want to greet people. He had me washing cups that I didn't dirty. <laughs> He had me cleaning ashtrays I didn't use. He had me passing the treasury and wouldn't even let me steal it. <laughs> Although I overcame. <laughs> I made amends. He had me doing things that didn't make any sense to me. And I, and I did the best of my ability to step, so I'll tell you about that in a minute. At the end of my year, at my home group, we do a certain Illinois. The sponsor gives you a little chip, and then they sit down. Down. Something happened to me on the way to the podium. My sponsor said some nice things and sat down. Now, he was sober about nine. And I came to the podium with my... And I was walking hand in hand. With, I ascended the podium. And as I came up, I, I noticed Bill and Bob's picture on the wall. And, and I saw mine floating up between them. And I... I glanced down at old Barney and, and realized how, what a pathetic life he had. I think, my God, why is he my sponsor? I outgrew him spiritually a long time ago. I didn't know it, but I fired him. I sponsored myself from my second year to my seventh year, did steps 1, 12, and 13. By the way, ladies, perhaps at the dance, and you're under a year, and... Would you like to go have coffee and run? <laughs> I think it's important to mention that seven years sober, I weigh 146 pounds. I've lost my teeth. I know not one like a man who's lost his teeth. I... And I'm more depressed than I've ever been in my life. And I think AA doesn't work. I mean, I've been here seven years have not missed a day of meetings for seven years. A doesn't work. That's what I told myself. Now, I can't call my sponsor because I fired him and he doesn't know that. I can't come to you because I've been lying to you about my sponsor. I'm at that jumping off spot I do. So I called my psychiatrist. Don't judge me yet. I'm not giving an opinion. I'm sharing my personal. I called my psychiatrist and, he, and that blood test shown me to be he prescribed that and amitriptyline, which is a pain blocker, and another chemical that was in it, which is now known worldwide as And he said that I needed it. Based on that, I believed him and I thought I'd better call my sponsor. And I called Barney, and he met me. I didn't tell him why I wanted to meet him, I just told him to see him. So he sat at the restaurant, cocky like all the old timers are. And I walked in with my little bag of untaken pills and sat down and I looked at Barney and I said, Barney, I'm bipolar. Barney says, we all know you're bipolar. We've known for a long time you're bipolar. He says, you know what, dummy? 
One of these days you're going to be walking down 16th Street and you're going to hear the loudest explosion you've ever heard. It's going to be your head popping right out of your ass. <laughs> and you won't be bipolar no more. That bothered me. And then he said it, he says, I'm not a doctor. He says, but I do know this. I know for a fact that you have never, you have not made AA your way of life. You have not dealt with the realities of living. Therefore, since you do not have a solution for a condition known as alcoholism, our symptoms are growing anxiety, depression, and fear. Those are the symptoms. And I had them to the 10th power. And he said, I'm gonna suggest something to you. Give us two years of your life. And he said, this time, do what we did. And follow direction. And then he did something that took And I spent six months out there. And then I went back to Illinois because I had, I wish it was more dramatic than this. In the 12 and 12 on page 15, paragraph three, it says this. <laughs> AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily being. I've always sought an effect produced in money, power, excitement. Come to find out in my seventh year, I wish it was more dramatic than that, but that's what my depression was lifted. And it worked, darn it. You know, I'm going to tell you. I was, in the, I was in the depths of a despair, I couldn't, it was in me. And I thought it was inextricable circleholics. I was able to one day at a time go beyond what happened to me. And my dreams began to come true. It's, I never really believed that he would win. I had to work those steps and I had to make amends for that. And I've been put in different positions. Uh, I, was in a, I was in a city with you. My nephew Skippy, I was 15 years old. My little nephew was just a little guy. And my mother directed me not to take Sonia. Walked him right through Sunset Marina. Well, Sunset Marine is where the gangs have bullies, and, and they always picked on the retarded Marina. And as we're walking along the water's edge, they started chasing, terrified, and I ran off. I used to lie and say I didn't hear them, but I did. They yelled out if I didn't come back. They, the police found me later that night, and uh, they said that Skippy fell in the water, and they tried. And I couldn't live with that. And I didn't know how I was going to pay that back, because I knew I was wrong. A lot of people said, what would you know disobedience? And I know if I hadn't disobeyed my mother, I didn't know how I'd ever pay that back spiritually. See, I'm a coward. I believe I'm a coward to the 10th power, and I'm not going to get involved in it and avoid it. So here I am. I'm in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm 10 years old in Des Moines, Iowa. They put me where they thought I could do some good. <laughs> and my job is to hit the code green button and get out of the way. That was my job. Hit the code green and run. Get out. Well, one of the nurses there named, and uh, one of the patients, David, so was let out to go to the cafeteria, and he wasn't to know that. And I was on the unit that night. Something. My impulse was to head out. I found myself not even pushing the code green, and just as I ran into Julie's room, dead. and I took the hit. I took the hit, and then I took him, and I didn't even think about what happened. But I walked out of there, got my weeded, saved Julie's life is what they He said, you know what, God just allowed you to amend. I can even eat Skippy Peanut I couldn't even have, love Skippy Peanut Butter, but that name. You know, it's funny how we operate under guilt and shame, and that's how it affected me. And I've got five kids, how do I get from them? See, I thought because I didn't spank, sponsorship is allowed to find freedom. Sponsoring people in alcoholism. If 
you sponsor people, you know exactly what I mean. It's like AA daycare. And I didn't know that that was going to give me the opportunity. And I'll tell you something, some of my dreams got to come true. I always wanted to be a police officer. Always wanted to be a police officer. I impersonated a police officer when I was Two years I impersonated. Actually chased people. Used to pull them over in the middle of the night with a red flashing light plugged into my cigarette lighter. I'd get out of my car and actually handcuff them to the car and leave them. I was looking forward to retirement. My sponsor told me that if I have a dream, whether I fail or not, to try to achieve that dream, because if I don't, I'll wake up someday an old man depressed. And so I applied for the Sheriff's Department and no, I'd never get on. Not with my past. The nine domestic charges against me, the attempted murder charge. How am I going to become a police officer? And so we worked and did some things legally and got my, took the test. <laughs> it was great. I filled out the application, told the truth, said I'm a truth. They called me in for an interview and I think the only... My sponsor said, go do it. And I put that lime green polyester suit on. <laughs> it was a good luck piece. And I got interviewed, took the physical test. I went into the academy. 16 weeks later, I graduated fourth in my class. I called my sponsor and I said, I said, will you come to my graduation? I'm going to tell you something. All of the people in that age, could you imagine what that looked like? <laughs> Every kind of criminal element you can imagine. <laughs> and then I told Barney, Barney, they gave me my gun. This is what I heard. Oh, shit. <laughs> and, uh, I did that for a few years, and, and uh, I moved out there, and I joined the facility. He's now my sponsor, and, and thank God, because I, I, I love AA so much, and I get dreamt of. I want to tell you about commitment. Uh, it doesn't matter how long sober you are. You need another person. Still need that person. I was at a, thank God Dick was at that company, Dick. And so I'm not afraid to say, help me. And if I ever get that way, power again. Now, I've got a God in my life. Don't misunderstand. God that I'm not up here to do But I've got one that means everything. That's in. That doesn't mean I'm not working a pro and when that fear starts pushing out, I need a human power on the other end that knows I'm not God. To help me sort out what's really true and what Because a drink is right near me at that time. Three and a half months ago, I was faced with the greatest My 12-year-old son, my son's mother and her husband, to be done. But after I had a long talk with my side, I went out to a place called Monterey, crying like a baby. I said, okay, thank God someone from AA. And I knew I did the right thing. Some of you women would judge that, I believe. Day after day, I got up and asked God to give me a reason. Sober 21 and a half years. And by the way, I surrendered. I let it go. A month and a half later, I, a month and a half ago, I got a phone call from... And, uh, I'm here because I made a commitment. Just, they're all spoiling this. He's a good-looking kid. He, he just so... <laughs> Girls just got to play with his hair. Some other things have happened in my life. Six months ago, I want to share this. But when I agreed to talk, I didn't know about the doctor. So uh, my partner called me up. From, so I called the secretary. And, and of course, he's not going to say. And that's exactly what he did. And I got over to Van Nuys. I don't know if that's what he would have said, but that's what I thought. And actually, what I did was I went back. I didn't go to I'd be here. I'm not happy to be here. If I didn't have to be here, I wouldn't be here. And I droned on like that must have been. And then finally I got over myself and did my. And after the meeting, I was. <laughs> I looked for his wristband. <laughs> I did. And he told me to. I thought he was lying. 
And he told me to go to 20th Century Fox or be a gate pass at 10 a.m. at uh, so-and-so headquarters. I said, sure. <laughs> Bet you're going to have milk and cookies at 10. <laughs> so I got a hold of my sponsor. And he said, go, stupid. He didn't say stupid. He said, go. Go find it. I finally asked him, why? <laughs> Who needs to watch Oscar De La Hoya anyway? And he meant for bragging. I hope you heard it. In the I've always kept my commitment. I mean, and I've, I've had love. I've, I've felt love. You can't have a broken heart. And I'm not real happy about the broken too. I love AA. I love what AA has afforded me. I hope if you're new in this room that the act of surrender, Mike, I want to do it. He talked about how he came around over here. And little bit by bit, he get a job, get a car, get a driver's license. Pay your child support. <laughs> if you're new in this room, I want you to know as hokey as this is, how put one hand in the hand of your loving father. And if that means G-O-D, group of drunks, or G-O-D, good orderly design for living, or a sponsor, good orderly direction, whatever the God of your understanding is, put the other hand in the hand of your strength. Thank you for letting me be part of it.